Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking in to the best Houston sports podcast. Robert with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bijani. Later in the show, we discuss Dusty Baker's sudden retirement just in as we started recording. Tomorrow, I've got a Carolina Panthers insider to preview the Texans game, and we're about to preview the C.J. Stroud-Bryce Young matchup in seconds. But, Sean, let's start with some good news. The Texans getting back a few guys from injury. Tank Dell, maybe Hassan Ridgeway, Tavier Thomas, Denzel Perryman. Denzel Perryman, am I missing anybody? Well, Josh Jones, too. Um, you know, he's a guy that's been out for a little bit. You know, there was a trio of uh, players out with hand injuries, and they were all wearing clubs. You talked about Perryman. You talked about Thomas. Josh Jones was one of those. Didn't see any clubs, but there's still some heavy wraps on guys' hands in practice. I saw Denzel Perryman still sporting one today. Josh Jones, a little heavy tape job along with Tavier Thomas. You didn't mention Juice Scruggs, and rightfully so. He's not yet back still has not been seen on a practice field. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen him in the locker room probably in about three or four weeks uh, either. Now, as far as Hassan Ridgeway goes, this is a big one, in my opinion. Look, he's just that added depth. He's played in one game. Who knows how good this guy could be this season for the Texans that really need to continue to get production out of that defensive line. We know how good Sheldon Rankins has been, but they could certainly use depth. Hassan Ridgeway did practice Wednesday, and from what I saw in individual drills, looked pretty good, looked like he was moving around okay. His 21-day window started today. So that means the Texans, you know, can practice him every day for 21 days. He doesn't count on the 53-man roster, and if at some point in time they feel like he can contribute, they can put him back on the 53, and then they have to make adjustments otherwise, which – you know, roster gymnastics, they've seemingly had no problem doing that. So that's what keeps my email popping during the week is all the Derek Rivers up and down, cut, sign, all that mess. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Casario likes to do. But, uh, yeah, Hassan Ridgeway, hey, step one, uh, it was a good sign. At the end of the day, he didn't show up on the injury report outside of a limited participant. You know, he's still dealing with the calf injury. But, you know, there was a number of Texan players on the uh, limited participant front today. And, man, you know, we've talked about hands. And we know early in training camp and early in the season, we saw a whole bunch of guys dealing with hamstring injuries. Well, today you've got Xavier Hutchinson and Brevin Jordan, along with Robert Woods, all dealing with foot injuries. So what that's all about, who knows? Is it a little turf toes, a little plantar fasciitis? Is it a blister? Who knows? So you just kind of keep your fingers crossed that, uh, you know, those little kind of nagging injuries don't rear their head for the Texans, and they continue to get as close to full strength as they've been in a long time. This week's all about Stroud versus Young, C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young. If you weren't sure how close these two guys were, C.J. talked about how tight they were in Wednesday's presser, and Sean Stroud might have surprised everybody when he said, he didn't think Bryce is playing bad. CJ said Bryce is playing really well. And quote, I don't think people are watching in depth. Yeah. And I think there's probably a couple of things going on here. I'll give you three things. And one, Stroud mentioned himself. And But we do this all the time as fans and media is you see a team, you know, performing poorly like the Carolina Panthers. They're 0-6. They haven't played good football as a team yet. And so I think you automatically think, man, their quarterback stinks. 
<laughs> right? And so, look, we know Bryce Young has made some mistakes. He's There's been some turnovers. There's been some frustration, some disappointment that has been very visible, and his body language is on his face. But I think what C.J. Stroud was talking about today as he was going through it is that, hey, you know, I've watched this film, and he's making some good reads. He's making some good throws. Uh, he looks very similar to the way that he did in college, the baller that I know he can be. And so I think CJ's looking at it a little bit from, hey, I've known this guy, competed with and against this guy since middle school. Literally middle school is how far back the relationship goes. I, I think he's probably looking at it through a little rose-colored glasses, so to speak. But I also think, too, that, yes, it is the case that Bryce Young probably is doing some really good things that only – Another football player, so to speak, could maybe easily distinguish. Um, that, yeah, yeah. You know, as a rookie, as a veteran, just you know, from the layman, uh, they know what they know what they should be looking for, and they can tell by the timing or by the body language or by a player's eyes uh, what they're seeing when they're looking at film. So, ultimately, what 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 all all that matters is Sunday, and you know, Bryce Young going up against. Uh, this Texans secondary, much better pass rush uh, here in recent weeks, um, I think is going to be a big-time challenge for the Panthers and Bryce Young. Hey, uh, C.J. Stroud, he's got a thrown football now in the NFL Hall of Fame. If you missed it, the football he set the record with for yeah. most pass attempts to start a rookie season without an interception is now on display <laughs> in Canton. So that's kind of cool, Sean. I guess you know where that last pass wound up. It was on the sideline somewhere because he threw it away. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, Stroud, I think, knew exactly that. And that was uh, kind of the response that uh, was elicited today. Somebody bro brought that up to him. He was like, yeah, I guess that's kind of cool. You know, Hall of Fame. Yeah, why not? But I think in his mind, he's like, I know how I got there, <laughs> you know. And then a yeah. week later, he throws his first interception, which is literally the best interception anybody could ever throw uh, because – Two milliseconds later, you get the ball back after a Nico Collins forced fumble. So, um, yeah, hey, that's cool. Uh, C.J. Stroud, my guess is, uh, is going to have a lot more cooler things uh, memorabilia-wise to display in Canton, Ohio, uh, throughout the course of his maybe rookie season, uh, but certainly his career, because I think the dude's destined to do some pretty uh, unique and special things. Not saying he's going to be a Hall of Famer, but – you know, maybe accomplishing some cool things that makes its way up there to Canton. That'd be cool. If CJ is bad this week and Bryce is good this week, everybody's going to go, oh, maybe, you know, it's one of those things, Sean. Yeah, what have you done for me lately? And it, it just seems like it, it, if something goes wrong in this game for CJ, for whatever reason, people are going to notice because this is the game where everybody's spotlighting the Texans and, and the two quarterbacks. 100%. And maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. Who knows? You're still going to be for both of these teams. You know, keep in mind, the Panthers are coming off of a bye week themselves. Uh, you'd be seven games into a season. But yeah, this is the first time. And it's not to say that people haven't been paying attention to the Texans all along and that people haven't been paying attention on Bryce Young. Look, he was the number one overall pick and the Texans are surprising a lot of people. And they've beaten two pretty damn good teams already in the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Look, they took care of a New Orleans Saints team that at the end of the day might be a team that's in the mix uh, towards the end of the season themselves. Who knows? But 
this is the head-to-head, and you're going to see and hear and read all kinds of different stories throughout the course of a week, how they've been playing basketball together for, you know, the last decade when it's not football season, that they played in middle school, that, you know, they used to compete in seven-on-sevens, that they trained together in the off-seasons during college, and they haven't experienced one, obviously, yet together in the uh, NFL regular season or an NFL as an NFL player, but you're going to hear all of those stories. At the end of the day, it's magnified as it should be. And whoever comes out on top, I think, yeah, their personal story is going to be exacerbated, exaggerated, more talked about, more spotlight put on them. And you know what? Good for them. Rightfully so. This is your one and two picks. But I think at the end of the day, regardless of win or loss, I fully expect both of these guys to actually play pretty, pretty good sound football. Certainly we've seen a lot more of Stroud than we have of Bryce Young. At least I have. I mean, that's the only team I'm watching these days is the Texans, uh, you know, with two eyes, but you certainly expect to see the same similar Stroud, if not a more improved one, because that's exactly who you've gotten uh, each and every week. CJ taking the field for Bryce. Look, Think about the way we talk this guy up in the pre, pre-draft pre process and watching him, you know, his final year at Alabama. Dude is a competitor. Dude is a baller. Dude plays with a chip on his shoulder. I mean, what guy that's that hadn't been successful doesn't? Um, I fully expect Bryce to kind of take his game to to the next level, at least as much as the Texans' defense will allow him to. And quite honestly, maybe his own offense outside of Adam Thielen, he really hadn't very many guys to throw the ball to. Will Anderson picked two after Bryce Young. This might be his chance to get to the quarterback too, with that with that Carolina, you know, sort of uh, sifty with a bunch of, you know, water coming through the dike offensive line. Yeah, the uh, Panthers offensive line. I don't know if you had a chance to see this today, but I saw uh, somebody had released like a composite uh, grade of every NFL team's offensive line, and it was uh, the PFF grade. It was the SIS, which is like sports information, something or other, um, and then the ESPN grade. And cumulatively, the Texans grade out as 13th in the NFL. But uh, conversely, the Carolina Panthers are in the bottom half of the league. I can't remember their exact ranking, but I think they're in the bottom 10, 11 teams in terms of offensive line. And look, it's kind of been the case, right? Um, When you talked about Bryce Young, and we saw it a little bit, as I mentioned, his final year at Alabama, the way that he was able to maneuver the pocket, it was it was intriguing. It was kind of exciting. And it was because at times he made it look so damn effortless with his footwork in the pocket. It might just be a little shimmy or a little duck or step up uh, to, to evade pressure in the pocket. Well, he hadn't been able to do that yet. You know, with any regularity in the NFL, because he's getting it from the left, from the right, up the middle, all points in between. Um, And that's really thrown him off his game. And so hopefully the Texans can continue to do that. And Will Anderson maybe starts to see some results um, in terms of not just the pressures, but in the form of maybe sacks, more strip sacks and quarterback hits. If anybody should know what Bryce Young does in the pocket. It should be Will Anderson. Yeah, uh, He spent a lot of practices going up against Bryce Young. So that's going to be sort of a fun underlying story. While everybody's caught up in the Bryce versus CJ, there's a real mono mono on the field thing. And, you know, we got to talk, Sean, about the dumpster fire part of the Texans team right now. And the dumpster fire part of the Texans team has been their running game. Any chance their running game improves this week? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, the Texans probably have their best rushing performance all season long, and it might be by a lot, to be honest with you. And um, it, it's based off of two things. And one, you know, something a little bit more tangible that you can maybe hang your hat on, and that's the way that they ran the football um, in the first half against the New Orleans Saints. They ran for nearly 100 yards in the first half. Now, look. Their run game was, you know, pretty much stifled in the second half, along with their offense. That was a grit out type of uh, victory that their defense had to rise to the occasion and kind of save their butts in that game. But the way that Bobby Slowick utilized Damian Pierce and Devin Singletary, kind of switching it up a little bit, you know, Singletary was more the feature back in that game and certainly saw, you know, a lot more success. Um, you know, there wasn't explosive runs per se. I think Singletary rattled one off for maybe about 17, 18 yards at one point in time. But I think just the the encouraging signs that you saw from them in that Saints game, coupled with the fact that the Carolina Panthers suck uh, as a run defense, there's not been one time this season through the first six games of the year in which they've allowed less than 130 yards uh, on the ground. And that came week one. Every week, pretty much, with the exception of one, their run game has yielded more and more yardage. Yards per attempt, uh, yards per carry, I mean, uh, total yards. The worst they've given up is, uh, I believe, 162, and that was this past week or two weeks ago because they had this last week as a bye. 162 yards on the ground, and I don't think the Texans have done very much better than 130 yards, maybe 120 yards themselves on the ground. So I fully expect Bobby Slowick and this offense to continue to – figure out how best to utilize Pierce and Singletary, more so what we saw against the Saints, and the fact that the Panthers have shown vulnerabilities, uh, some poor tackling as well. I, I feel like it should be a very plus day for the Texans run game-wise. Yeah, the number that I heard was the Panthers are 31st out of 32 NFL teams against the run, so that pretty much underlines it. And then yeah. you have another part that the Texans have got to deal with in this game, and that's Panthers wide receiver Adam Thielen, who is seventh in the NFL in receptions. How important is it to slow him down, and how do you do it? Well, you know, Jimmy Ward, that's going to be a really good guy to talk to because he's typically a guy that will cover, you know, a slot receiver like that. He'll probably see some good time on Thielen this week, I would presume. Um, you know, look, Thielen's been really, really good. He's got three games of 11 catches already this season. His worst game. Uh, was coming off ahead of the bye. He only caught two balls for 12 yards. I'm not really sure what was going on there, especially, you know, since I think he'd played um, pretty much the entire game. That was a game they'd lost 24 to 10 to the Atlanta Falcons, a team that the the Texans, you know, obviously a few weeks ago should have ended up beating. But how you slow him down, you know, you got to be able to, uh, you know, I think press him, maybe make him work into his route a little bit more. But if you do that, then you better make darn sure you're in the neighborhood of coverage. And I don't know if the Texans are really set with the personnel to get away with that. We haven't seen it. So there's no reason to think they would do it. But I think that's how you've got to be able to slow a guy like that down. Maybe they can get creative. Um, ultimately, I'd like to see them continue to do what they've been doing. And if you're going to go pretty much heavy zone, then just be in better position to contest balls coming your player's way, right? Because I, I think they'd like to play a little bit more man. 
but you don't have the personnel to do that. Maybe one guy that would help you, at least on the edges, do that isn't going to be available, presumably, for another two, three, four weeks. Who knows with Derek Stingley? Um, you know, Shaquille Griffin against the Saints, we saw a couple of PIs. Um, I think we saw one his first game uh, in for Stingley about four weeks ago. He's a good, he's a good coverage guy, but he's very handsy. He's very physical, and sometimes he's just going to burn you because he gets a little too handsy. Um, so I think the best way to approach this thing, especially in the slot with Thielen, where you're going to be asking a safety to come down and cover him, maybe even a bump out backer, you know, in the in the flat to intermediate areas, just continue to play your zone, do your job, and execute when they do come in. Last thoughts about the Texans. Any, anything interesting from the locker room? I know they had the big locker room session uh, on <clears throat> Wednesday. You just got back from that a few hours ago. Uh, any Any final things that uh, are on your mind with them? Not really. Uh, I, I I wish I could have told you about a conversation that I had with Will Anderson, but, you know, he was kind of in and out in the shower and off to meetings today. I would love to have talked to Will Anderson about uh, going up against Bryce Young for the first time in the NFL. Hopefully I'll have an opportunity to do that uh, on Thursday. Uh, didn't get a chance to talk to Damian Pierce either. He hadn't spoken to the media um, maybe even before the week of the Saints game. I don't think he. I don't think he addressed the media the week of the Saints game. Maybe he came to the podium uh, for a few moments, but I, I really can't remember. I'd love to talk to him and just see how he evaluated himself in this run game within this offense. What he's been able to identify, if anything, that he feels. You know what? I could take a little chunk from what success we had in the Saints game and apply it. You know, going forward to the next eleven weeks. Or you know what? Um, I found something else. It's a timing issue. It's another half step back or, you know, whatever the case is anxious to talk to Singletary and Pierce about the run game. But aside from that, um, the most encouraging thing for the Texans, you mentioned it to start the show. It's, it's just health and knock on wood. They appear to be slowly, but surely getting a little bit healthier. Let's move to the news that just broke before we started. Dusty Baker announces his retirement 26 years as a major league manager, he leaves with the seventh most wins of any manager in baseball history, the fourth, fourth most playoff wins, and the fourth most playoff appearances. Sean, besides Chaz, who's popping champagne bottles right now, Chaz McCormick somewhere, he's going to be in the club tonight, uh, yucking it up, loving everything. No, I'm just kidding. Chaz, Chaz love, loves Dusty, I know. Uh, besides Chaz, um, What's your reaction to Dusty coming back or not coming back? I mean, I was a Dusty Baker guy. I thought, um, you know, he was the perfect guy to come in when he did um, and and be a face and a calming influence for this team. I mean, we all know that, and I think we would all agree with, with that same sentiment. But it's tough because, you know, as he as as quick as he says, hey, I'm gone, he says, I'll be back in some capacity, probably not to manage a ball club, but maybe in an advisory role or something like that, presumably somewhere in California, maybe with the Giants under Bob Melvin, their new manager over there. Um, but it's because he's he can contribute to this game still. I mean, you watched it. We were blessed with, uh, you know, that <laughs> that library of baseball knowledge. Uh, for four years in the city of Houston, man. And I think that's something that we absolutely innately take for granted. 
And it's because, well, he had already started a pretty damn good three-year run prior to Dusty coming along. But he maintained it. And in many respects, I feel like maybe made things even better, maybe made them even stronger, maybe galvanized um, players on this team um, that another manager or managers felt like maybe they just couldn't do it the same way. And you know what? Chances are you probably wouldn't have been able to do it the same way because not everybody's Dusty Baker. He's a unique individual, and I think that's what I'm going to miss the most. Um, I didn't have one single solitary interaction with him throughout the course of these four years, but once upon a time ago when he coached uh, and managed the Cincinnati Reds and I covered the Astros on a daily basis, I had an opportunity to sit in his office uh, for about 45 minutes before the ball game. And I can not tell you uh, how amazed and thrilled and lucky I was because it was shortly after my grandfather had passed away where um, I hadn't heard as many cool stories from one man with so much knowledge and experience and having met so many uh, great ball players, coached them, played with and against them than I did from Dusty Baker, just aside from my grandfather who could share those stories with me. And so from Hank Aaron's stories to, um, you know, just dealing with guys like Barry Bonds over the years and uh, what he thought of the current Astros roster back then that was comprised of Michael Bourne and Hunter Pence and still a Biggio plan. Uh, it's just pretty cool. And so I'm just going to miss the the wisdom, the knowledge, you know, the one-liners that he'd give you, uh, the, the grisly, growling, dusty, you know, dealing with reporters that he didn't like or right after losses. That's what I'm going to miss. But uh, it's going to be a pivotal moment for the Astros to pick the the next guy it has to be the right guy. Cause the window is still very much open. Yeah. The cool thing about having dusty around is, you know, how, how many more guys do we have in sports that have this connection to the golden era connection to Hank Aaron? I mean, he was on the, you know, we've talked about it. He was on the on deck circle, the on deck circle when Hank Aaron hit the home run that passes Babe Ruth. He was, he was at, <laughs> he was on the field when Nolan Ryan threw his fifth no-hitter in the Astrodome way back in 1981, I think it was, 1980-81. Um, I'm blanking on which year, but he was right there. And, and then, yeah. you know, all the connections to all the guys that he has around the game. I'm not going to miss the, the grumpy, dusty after-the-game stuff, I, just like I didn't and don't miss the Bill O'Brien grumpy stuff. And I, I'm, I'm not big into grumpy coaches after-game <laughs> stuff. But, you know, I, I just – I want to re rewind and play something for you guys from uh, our, our game seven post game and just address again with this clip from our post game show in case you missed it. Some of you probably wanted to go to sleep, didn't want to watch our live post game, which I totally understand after that game. But uh, this is what Steve and I, Stephen and I said um, about what Dusty accomplished with this year's team and over his time here in Houston. Here's just a little bit of that. It is easy to be a little heartbroken after this, but what if I told you before the season started that you wouldn't have Lance McCullers or Luis Garcia all year long? You wouldn't have Jose Arquiti most of the year. Christian Javier would lose his fastball and look like a washed-up Dallas Keuchel with a 4-plus ERA this year. Altuve would miss 72 games. Jordan would miss nearly 50. Hunter Brown would be awful for half the season. Ryan Stanek had a nine ERA. The Astros would have spent most of the year 
behind the Texas Rangers. But in the end, in the end, they still beat the Rangers in the division. They still get to their seventh straight ALCS. Ladies and gentlemen, how would you feel if that's what happened after all of this? Robert, you and I both know, and I think most fans know, it is awfully, awfully difficult to get to the World Series three straight years, sometimes even two straight years. The Astros did that in 21 and 22. They were on the cusp of doing it again this year, but it's awfully hard to do that. But they almost did it. What I will point out to people that just like jump on Dusty, Stephen, you just said it. The Astros went under Dusty to the seventh game of the ALCS, the World Series. They won a championship, winning in that in that season, 11 to two in the postseason, 11 to two. And then we just went over all the stuff that the Astros went through here this year, still getting to the seventh game of the ALCS. You can go, I hate this dusty decision. I hate that dusty decision. But bottom line is you can't hate the results. You're not going to win the World Series every year, especially when you're beset by injury after injury after injury. And and what he did during the pandemic was ridiculous. I mean, they were terrible that year, and they still almost got to the World Series. John, that was just a little bit, and, and I didn't even get into the fact that Dusty went during the pandemic season when the Astros couldn't do anything and still got to the seventh game of the ALCS. He did it without Justin Verlander. He did it without yep. Jordan Alvarez. I didn't talk about the next year when they went to the World Series. He did it without Justin Verlander again. By the time they got to the World Series, they had no Lance McCullers. I mean, they, 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 they were losing people left and right throughout his tenure. And, and he still got it done. And everybody yeah. on your favorite, you know, on your favorite sports app, on your favorite social media sports app, you know, it's just nonstop. Dusty is doing this wrong. And Dusty is doing that wrong. Look at what he's done right. Look at what he's done right. Look how good the, the, the Astros are. And there has never been a player that has come out and said, I hate this Dusty decision, even behind his back. You know, there, Chandler said there was – stuff about Chaz or whatever that maybe he wasn't super happy with stuff like that. But Chaz immediately comes out and says, that's not the case. Dusty comes out and says, we don't have an issue with each other. These guys loved him one through 26 every single year he was there. And all they wanted to talk about after they won the world series last year was Dusty Baker. He deserved it. This is his, you know, he's the leader, all of that sort of stuff. And it's the old thing. It's the old ad- adage is, is be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Because now all those Astros fans that did like what Dusty did and hated Dusty and wanted him gone. And let me just say, Sean, I don't think playing Yonder Diaz over Maltin Maldonado against the Rangers was the difference in the Astros winning or losing that series. You know, Yonder Diaz wasn't going to knock in nine runs or eight runs or whatever you needed you know, to beat the Rangers in game seven. He wasn't going to do it. It wasn't going to happen. So, like, enough, enough with that. Yeah, well, maybe the one guy that could have um, led the American League in RBIs this year in Kyle Tucker, and, you know, he didn't show up at all during the entire postseason. So uh, you don't fault Dusty Baker for perennial all-star type players uh, that don't show up. Um, You know, the one thing that, that, you know, just echoes the point that, that I made earlier and that um, 
I mean, it's almost commonplace and obvious now that, you know, the guy's gone because we always look back and talk about the good things and how the bad times really weren't so bad. And you'd, you'd take him twice on Sunday now because you don't have him anymore. But it's that, uh, look, we took him for granted. We took the Astros for granted. It was innate. It was inevitable. Um, it happened. We lived through it. We enjoyed it. But did we enjoy it as much as we possibly could have? Do we ever in anything? Um, the, the one thing that Dusty Baker, you know, brought to the clubhouse and to each and every one of the players, I think, was not taken for granted by them. And that's the way that he he just knew how to be with people. You know, it, it was nothing that, man, I've, I've got to do it this way. I've got to say this. It's just Dusty and six decades of baseball in his blood. Uh, that has made him who he is and it's corny as hell, but because he's in the wine business, I'd say it this way. When you know how to deal with the ball player, when you know how to deal with a room full of ball players that, you know, bring all of their daily struggles and even struggles at work to work and that are working so tirelessly to just get over this, that, and the other thing in their lives. Um, sometimes when you've done that, for you know your entire life pretty much as Dusty Baker has since he was the age of 18 in professional baseball it does become one of those things that ages like a fine wine you just know how to press everybody's buttons and you know how to listen and you know how to react and I guarantee you this Chaz and Dusty probably disagreed 10 times a week on something but at the end of the day because both had mutual respect for one another and maybe more so coming from Chaz to Dusty than vice versa. Who knows? But that's why you keep a professional. And um, Dusty did that better than anybody, uh, maybe during the course of his career in baseball. But more importantly, uh, you know, for Astro fans, he did it better than anybody and represented the Astros better than anybody ever has um, during a really tough stretch during the greatest time, you know, in, in, in Astros history, you know, getting a second world series in 2022, uh, it was just classy. It was great. We're all going to miss him, and, uh, the best of dusty because whoever he ends up contributing for in some form or shape, form or fashion, um, they're going to be lucky for it. Last thing I'll say about dusty's retirement is you have to feel a little bit as though dusty, can see the end coming with the Astros. And I think this is part of the equation. And, you know, if Dusty thought, hey, next year they're going to win the championship, he would have thought, I think, much longer and much harder about this decision. I think there, there still would have been a chance that he would have come back. But when he looks at what's going on right now, and I know Astros fans just want to say, well, most of the key guys are coming back. You know, you're a little worried about Hector Neris, you know, whatever about Phil Mayton. I, I mean, I don't know if that's a big loss. If he, if he ends up going, Michael Brantley, we know is probably gone. So, you know, there's some guys here and there, but we, we talk about, you know, Bregman still got a year left. Altuve still got a year left and so on and so forth. But look, Dusty, what he did with the pitching staff this year was a minor miracle. It was devastating. And the problem with the pitching staff this year is none of this stuff is guaranteed to come back next year. Is Christian Javier, going to return to the Christian Javier we saw two years ago. Who knows? I mean, I thought it looked like a dead arm. I said after the game seven postgame, 
whenever he had longer rest this year, he looked like a much better pitcher. And he was back to regular rest for this game seven. So that was my point. So maybe with the rest of the offseason, Christian Javier comes back. But I don't know. He doesn't have a long, long history. Framber Valdez, I don't know what's going on with him. And you don't know with Framber. It's And it's all, you know, between the ears with that guy. So, you know, you just don't know. Has he lost it again? You know, when, when we saw he, he didn't have it really when he was brought up originally with the Astros. Lance McCullers, wouldn't count on him. Luis Garcia, wouldn't count on him. Jose Arquiti, you know, constantly injured. I don't know. Is he going to come back? Justin Verlander is going to be 41 here, whatever. It's He's old. And, you know, at some point, uh, Father Time wins every time. You know, Father Time's going to get you. So the starting pitching staff has got some real, real, real question marks. And, and Hunter Brown and J.P. France, we'll see. I mean, those guys pitch for about, wow. you know, a half a year good. But, you know, we have no idea what those guys are going to do. And this starting pitching staff is in big time flux and they need some luck next year for some of these guys to get back because you're not you, you're, you're not going to minor league yourself back to this from a starting pitching perspective no way yeah look there's a lot of question marks and you just hit on most of them i think and um the the encouraging thing is though is that you mentioned two guys jp france and hunter brown hey what better situation could those guys have come into where you know you get seemingly thrown into the fire early on in the season in some major roles on a team that has had a bullseye on its back for the better part of a decade and you pitch the way that those two guys did to start the year they went through their trials and tribulations as professionals but that's the one reason why i'm encouraged by it in that too you do have a guy like justin verlander that's still on the staff that's going to be here uh presumably for the next uh, couple of years um to, to help with that uh, and, and a lot of other guys too look uh the, the astros pitching coaches headed by josh miller um that that's a big one too i mean do i think the astros could do better in that regard i mean i don't know um i i if, if the astros decided you know what we we like these two guys instead of doing what we can to convince uh brent strom to stick around a couple of years ago when they had the opportunity uh but decided to let him walk and drift into retirement before he changed his mind to go to the world series with the diamondbacks this year i mean hey so be it um, they, they have some they have some personnel decisions to make. They have some uh, player decisions to make. They don't have a ton of money to spend this offseason uh, in free agency. And the decisions that they do have to make in terms of retaining their five free agents um, aren't exactly make or break um, for any of them. Uh, so it, it's going to be interesting. Like, in large part, for the second straight year, you're going to be able to bring back pretty much everybody you ended the season with. But there are some key figures in Martin Maldonado and in Michael Brantley and in Dusty Baker that presumably at least two-thirds of those guys aren't going to be here. If Martin Maldonado returns in a much lower role, basically if him and Yiner flip roles for next season, I don't know how that's going to break, but – um, you could do a lot worse than sticking and keeping a guy around like Martin Maldonado with, again, the, the wealth of knowledge that he has in handling the pitching staff and just knowing this pitching staff. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. But how about this? Of- how about this? Martin Maldonado as the next Astros manager. I haven't heard I mean, that batted around, but it's if you- not. 
if you would have said bench coach, I would have said, yeah, you know what? That is probably a, a real strong possibility. Um, and I, I, I feel that way. Um, but it also comes down to a few variables. And one that, look, <clears throat> Dana Brown, I don't know what that relationship and I'm talking about professional relationship is like with Jim Crane. I don't know if he was brought in to necessarily be your prototypical general manager or basically an advanced talent evaluator. He's a scout at heart, and he's been a damn good one throughout his career. But something tells me that with the reports that we heard uh, per Brian McTaggart, that Jim Crane and Jeff Bagwell are going to oversee the search for their new manager while Dana Brown, Dana Brown just simply has a say, maybe says a lot more to the fact that we heard whispers and roars months ago in regard to David Stearns, whom now the Astros had missed out on, and he went to one of the New York teams up there, right? Was it the Mets or the Yankees? I can't remember. Um, but if they were looking for that guy to come in and be a presumable president of baseball operations, a guy like that would be very much in charge of finding the next manager for your ball club. Uh, and if not him, then it would be Dana Brown typically under what we think general managers do. Well, that's not the case apparently. So it's going to be very interesting to see the road the Astros go down in terms of who they think is going to be and should be the next manager. Is it Brad Ausmus because of the relationship with Jeff Bagwell? Is it, um, you know, Ron Washington, because he's another older coming influence, you know, old baseball guy? I highly doubt it. I think any list you see him on is immediately discredited. Um, you know, the Astros, they said they want to get younger. Well, you know what? Joe Espada's not an old codger. In fact, he probably makes the most sense because he'd survived A.J. Hinch. Uh, he should survive Dusty Baker in terms of being able to get a manager job somewhere in Major League Baseball. I think it should be here. And my only reasoning is this, and I think it's the most logical. When you're returning most of your guys, your entire core, why do you need to change the culture? It's so hard to find that guy that immediately aligns with everything that you already had in place. And not to say that, hey, you know what, there ain't some things that are broke and that need fixing. But Joe Espada gets it. And I think you could do a hell of a lot worse than putting your faith and your trust in a guy that has done more than enough to prove that he's ready to lead a major league ball club. Why not the one that he has the most familiarity with? Yeah, the thing that about Joe Espada is, he hasn't gone anywhere, and we, we kept thinking that somebody was going to hire him. He was going to go somewhere, and you wonder what the conversations were like with Joe Espada the last few years and, and how he ended up staying with the Astros. Uh, last thing that I, I want to bring up, and, and there's a lot more Astros questions coming up down yeah. the road as we move into the next few weeks. Last thing I'll bring up is Bruce Bochy was a guy that Dusty Baker – went to and discussed this decision with their close friends, two of the great managers that we just saw of all time going up against each other in this last series. One of the real reasons why the series was fun. While I hate one X Astro uh, catcher that's a manager, Scott Service, uh, Bruce Bochy, tip of the cap to that guy, nothing but respect, one of the great managers ever. <clears throat> if people forget, Bruce Bochy was an original Houston Astro 
was drafted by the Astros, went through the minor leagues. He was a backup catcher. An important thing to remember, Bruce Bochy in game four of the Astros Philly series in the LCS in 1980 was at the plate when Pete Rose ran over him uh, when he missed, missed a short hop uh, throw from the outfield. And that run ended up being the winning run against the Astros in game four. The Astros would lose in game five after having a two nothing lead against the Phillies in that series. It's interesting to me that Bruce Bochy had a chance to exact his revenge, but the Diamondbacks took it away from him. He's not going to face the Phillies now in the championship and in the World Series. So uh, that that's a little interesting side note. The other side note is, of course, everybody knows about Brent Strom. What an amazing job that that guy continues to do. Yeah. If there's any pitching coach that should be in the Hall of Fame like before he retires, it's Brent Strom. Because two years ago, the Diamondbacks stunk. And he's turned them into a World Series team two years later. I mean, it was just two years ago. I mean, it, we think it's a long time ago. Brent Strom was here just two years ago, and he's already got this Diamondback pitching staff, one of the best in baseball, and he's got into the World Series, doing it with some young guys too, and just amazing stuff. So, you know, I'll definitely be rooting for uh, some Brent Strom in that. Robbie Grossman, we didn't even mention this, much in the Astros or Rangers Series, Houston area kid original Houston Astros called up with the Astros in the, in the rebuild. So he's now in the world series, kind of cool story. Um, that that's all we got for this one. I, I do want to remind people that me and Sean will be doing the live Texans post game. He's got some stuff to do. We've talked about the last live post game. He's got a little bit of stuff to do at over at sports radio, Six Ten, which is going to run us maybe an hour or two behind normal. So it's going to be closer to five o'clock when our live uh, Texans post game, if you miss it, don't worry. It's there. It's up on YouTube. Just look in the live section. It's always there. All the live shows are there. Go check them out. If you missed our game seven post game where we got into all sorts of stuff, me and Steven, uh, go listen to that. Also go watch the game five post game. If you just want to feel good, uh, had a great one with RG about the uh, Altuve walk off or sort of walk off home run uh, game winning home run against the Rangers. And what I still believe is one of the top, despite not winning the series, I still think, it's one of the top five Astros playoff games I've ever seen. And so that's worth uh, reliving, too, if you get into the archives. But otherwise, we'll talk to you again come uh, Texans time, Ian Sean. But don't forget, tomorrow we got Carolina Panthers Insider. We'll talk more about this Texans game. A lot to discuss. We'll go back to talking C.J. Stroud and what he's seeing with Bryce Young. So that should be fun. Thanks for joining us, everybody. <laughs> You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Attack!